Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning. We're so glad that you're joining us here. Good morning to all of you watching in Port Perry, Boneville, or anywhere around the world. We're so glad that you're with us. A few years ago, I was in a, a line in a Starbucks to, in the drive-thru to buy a coffee. And when I arrived at the, uh, the gate there, the, the woman opened it up and she said, by the way, you don't need to pay. I was in shock. I didn't understand. She said, no, the person in front of you has paid for your coffee. Now, in that moment, how did I react? Did I say, excuse me, do you know who I am? Do you not think I have a job? Was I insulted in the moment someone was kind to me? Did I get defensive and say, well, who paid for it? Can I trust them? Is it poison? What are you trying to do to me? What is this all about? I don't understand. See, our culture, even when a good thing is given to us, has become prideful, cynicism marks us, or suspicious. And much of the time, what we're doing is we're missing the unbelievable free gift that's right in front of us because we actually think we can do it or we don't believe it's true and it's too good to be true. How you start a conversation, how much you are open to this conversation about God and his goodness and his promises to us matters so very much. Of course I took the free cup of coffee. You can all do that later too. I'm good with that. We dive back into Daniel 4 where Daniel is in a moment Well, actually, it's nothing but an epic moment, a monumental moment. The king of Babylon, the most powerful man on earth, is telling his own story of encounter, how he actually moved from pride and cynicism, and I don't need that, to yes. This is a firsthand account about how a pagan, polytheistic dictator met the God of the Jews unexpectedly. The only true God had come close to him and met him at his height of power, humbled him, and then he begins as the king to worship God. And never forget, we we miss this today, ancient Near Eastern kings were the representatives of their gods. So the Jews had been conquered. So in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, his God, and he was stronger than the Jews and their God. And yet this conquered God kept conquering him. If God loved the king so much and wanted to keep meeting him, then we should know God would want to meet any of us. Let's start where we did last week, Daniel 4, 1, the nations to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. The God of the Jews, the king says, has come close to me. It is beautiful to me. It is with joy and it is with love. It is with new discovered hope that I, your king, give you my story, my personal encounter that I had with the living Most High God. And he says, I want to tell everyone from every race from the most powerful to the weak God who I did not even know who I dismissed has actually now met me and he started like this I Nebuchadnezzar was home in my palace content and prosperous the story starts at the highest point of the king's life full of self-reliance power control military might the king says I was at rest I was free from fear I was prospering it literally reads in the original language I was growing green in my rest No war, no conquering. He's living the American dream and running the American dream. And in the middle of what we all think would bring hope and happiness and everything we want, suddenly God interferes with this great king. And it reads like this in verse 5. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed and the images and visions that passed through my mind, they terrified me. The king of kings, while sleeping, experiences another great overwhelming emotional disturbance. So shocking, so scary, so overwhelming, he is struck with terror. 
So he calls in all the wise men, the occultists, the scientists, everyone. He gives them the dream. They could not understand the dream or help him interpret it. And so then Daniel comes in. Daniel gives him, the the king gives Daniel the dream. And this was Daniel's reaction. This is where we ended last week. Daniel 4.19. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time. And his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, that's Daniel, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And he answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies. And it's meaning to your adversaries. Daniel knows how serious this is. He knows what this will mean. It is overwhelming, worrying, horrifying. And notice, he's not just scared. Daniel is actually sad. Daniel is genuinely concerned for the king. He takes no pleasure in this at all. His stress is not due to him not understanding. He is full of anxiety for the king. Don't forget, the king is his enemy. And yet he loves him. The king is his enemy, but he cares for him. So concerned for the king, he said, I wish what I had now heard from God would apply to those who hate you, those trying to assassinate you, those who gossip against you, to your external enemies. This is so bad, I don't even want to think what this will mean for you. But then Daniel at this moment repeats the dream. The tree you saw which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all and giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. Oh, you've become great. Uh, You've become strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to different distant parts of the earth. Now, we found this out last week. This symbol of this cosmic tree was a common symbol in the ancient times. It was called the Axis Mundi, where heaven and earth touched. The cosmic tree was the center of the universe, the symbiotic link between heaven and earth. And the king had gone farther than most. He started believing he and the tree were one. He's the king of the world. Now he's the king of the cosmos. He almost is starting to think, I am godlike in my persona. So Daniel says, you're the tree. And the king would have gone, of course. Of course I'm the tree. And this is the moment where the terror struck in the dream. Your majesty, Daniel says, you saw an angel, a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. Leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with wild animals until seven years pass by for him. This is the scary moment. An angel comes from God's very throne room in heaven, cries out that the great cosmic tree shall be cut down. The roots will not be touched. The tree will be broken and shattered. But there might be new life that comes from the stump. But before new life can come, there will be this gift that will not seem like a gift at the beginning. It will be a grand, altering life humbling for this king. And out of this humbling, there will be life. And then Daniel says, now this is the interpretation. Oh, your majesty... This is the decree the Most High God has issued against you, the Lord my King. You will be driven away from people. You'll live with wild animals. You'll eat grass like an ox. You'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven, not you, heaven rules, God is going to bring you down by giving you temporary mental illness. You will live like an animal. You will think like an animal. This grand humbling is God-given, is God-inspired, but will be limited. 
The great king, the great general, the great architect, the great artist of his generation, the great king of kings will live among the animals. His mind will be lowered. For seven years he will live under this terrible condition. The true living God, the conquered God of the Jews will bring you down. And oh, you don't even know this God and yet he keeps meeting you. Then he also will actually restore you and he will give you your kingdom back because he owns everything. But it will only happen when you humble yourself and you accept the free gift that he has given you. He rules. Well, just after Daniel gave the interpretation, Daniel does something shocking. Daniel goes off script. He's understood the dream. The Spirit of God has interpreted the dream. He has expressed it. But now Daniel says something very personal to his enemy. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice to you. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Repent while you still can, he says. And then he says, you need to repent not of one thing, not of two things, but of three things. The first thing is this, pride. You're only a human being. You're here today and gone tomorrow. There is only one who's uncreated, that is God. Stop acting and thinking like you're the tree or you're God, you're not. Second, renounce your sin. Now, we don't catch the power of this, but this is very offensive and quite shocking that Daniel is saying this to a king that could take his life. In other words, he's saying, you must obey God, not just in your mind, but in your actions. Well, what would he mean by that as an Orthodox Jew? Well, he would mean the Ten Commandments. Uh, Many of you would know them. Let me read a summary. Exodus 20, have no other gods before me, God says. Oh, you shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, the earth beneath, or the waters below. Oh, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Oh, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie about your neighbor, and don't covet anything your neighbor has. You say, well, why is that so shocking? Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan, polytheistic dictator. His whole life, his whole religious worldview, his whole economic worldview, his whole spiritual understanding, his relational understanding, his power base is based on breaking all of these rules every single day. He's enshrined laws that actually break God's law. And Daniel says, stop thinking you're like God and repent. Do a 180. You may not understand God fully, but this is his deal. And more, not just pride and not just personal sin. He says, you must go farther. You must, as the head of the state, deal with the sin of the state. Oh, great king, you use the poor. You kill off people. You don't even think about it. You invade lands. I'm a living testament. He says, I'm a slave. You use slaves to build your great projects. Thousands or tens of thousands die because of heat, bad working conditions, and lack of safety. Your kingdom is based on exploitation. Your life is based on class and caste distinction. Repent. If you turn from your overwhelming pride and your law-breaking ways and you change the ongoing humanitarian crisis you keep making, perhaps, maybe, I can't guarantee it, God might give you more time and be merciful to you. Now, don't miss this. God keeps choosing to visit this king. This is the king that burnt Solomon's temple to the ground. This is the king that invaded Jerusalem, killed off its people, and enslaved people like Daniel. This is the king that regularly breaks the Ten Commandments and does not even believe in the existence of the true living God. At the beginning, he worships false gods. He's involved in demonology. He hurts a ton of people. He's a dictator. And yet God keeps sending him dreams and did miracles right in front of him, keeps sending angels, and even had Daniel right beside him to warn him. See, that is our God. He might be holy, but he's holy love. He's merciful. So what does the king do with all of this mercy? 
Well, it says in verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And then in verse 29, it says, and 12 months later, oh, wait, God didn't just give him all these commands. He gave the king a whole year, not just to think or process, but to truly repent. Repentance means do a 180, change your ways. This is mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Remember, this king is not even part of God's people. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Now, we might not know this as modern people, but if you read any historian, the ancient city of Babylon was world famous. It contained not one, but two of the seven wonders of the world in that time. The hanging gardens of Babylon and the city walls. Now, the two city walls were world famous. Nothing had ever been built like this. They were 17 miles long and wide enough for between two and four chariots to pass on top of them. It had eight huge gates. The most famous was called the Ishtar Gate, which led to a massive street just under a kilometer long, which would bring you to the Grand Temple of Marduk, which was a massive tower. As you would walk towards this temple, the walls on each side were decorated with this beautiful black enamel bricks that shone. Embedded in all these gorgeous bricks was 120 lions and 575 dragons and bulls. More than 50 temples dotted the whole city. Then there was the huge hanging gardens of the time. These elevated gardens were so famous that people from all the way from Greece and faraway lands would come to visit. They had all the plant life that was available. They were harnessing the Euphrates River to build them. And you could see all of these gardens above those massive walls. They were that large and that beautiful. They were world famous. Nebuchadnezzar did all of that. I am self-sufficient. I have power and dominion, architecture, military might. Look at what I've done. Look how good a citizen I am. I have glory. Who is like me? Look at what I have done. He still worshiped gods, himself, and demons. See, pride has always been our human problem, and idolatry always comes from pride. And before you think idolatry is just bowing down to some image that's made of gold or silver or wood, never forget what idolatry really is. As one wrote, idolatry is trusted in created things rather than God for hope, happiness, significance, and security. Let me say that again. Idolatry is trusted in, trusting in created things rather than the creator for hope, happiness, significance, and security. If you have hope, happiness, significance, or security in anything beyond God, then you love that more than God, and that is an idol. See, Paul described the story of Nebuchadnezzar so well, actually all of our conditions so well, generations later when he wrote the book of Romans. It says this in Romans 1.21, For although we as human beings, they knew God, we neither glorify him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their, their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires to their sexual impurity, for the degradation of their bodies with one another, and they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. Amen. In other words, here's what he says. Humanity have become fools. Now, when we say the word fool in our culture, it has no ring to it. There's no offense to it. But in a Jewish worldview, fool was an incredibly strong word. One person wrote it like this, according to the Jews, the greatest fool of all is a disobedient person who possesses the greatest intelligence. 
The first meaning of being foolish was not having knowledge or practical experience. Fine. The second means a callous heart towards the moral implication of foolish choices. A fool is someone who just doesn't care if something goes wrong because they don't care. The third level of being a fool is to be willfully closed to wisdom. I don't want to hear that. And brutishly destructive towards self and others. I don't care if I get hurt or other people get hurt by my decisions. Fool. But the last version of a fool is a person that willfully is rebellious against God. And notice the progress, uh, progression of Romans 1. Men to birds to animals and reptiles. That's what he says happens in idolatry. It's the exact reversal of how God created the earth in Genesis 1. He created low to high, but we reverse the order when we sin. We start worshiping ourselves like Nebuchadnezzar did or other people. Remember, Genesis says we're made in the image and likeness of God. Nebuchadnezzar and we say, I'm, in the ma- I'm made in the image of me. And then when idolatry starts forming in a culture, in a heart, you move from worshiping yourself and then you move to birds and then to animals and then things that crawl on their belly gets darker and darker. And never forget that Satan crawled on his belly. Idolatry always ends you up worshiping the evil one. And our great thinkers of our culture today celebrate this. It was John Gray that wrote, over the past 200 years, philosophy has shaken the Christian faith, supposedly. It has shaken off Christianity's cardinal error, the belief that humans are radically different than other animals. In other words, we're no different than the rest of them. We're just another animal. We have no special value. So the king is a fool. He's hardened his heart, even though God has come to him again and again and again. So what happened to the king? Even as the words were on his lips, look what I have done. A voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people. You'll live with wild animals. You'll eat grass like an ox. And seven years will pass you by until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. And he gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what was said about King Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven from people. He ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched in the dew of heaven until a hair grew like feathers of eagles and his nails like the claws of his bird, like claws of a bird. In that moment, the king is brought down. The king is removed from office, removed from people, removed from the court. He was not allowed to live in society. Lack of hygiene, unkept, wild, dangerous to himself and others. The king never lost his title king because that's a birthright, but he was humbled and broken. The so-called God king, the so-called one who was at the center of the universe, the mightiest one is reduced to nothing. Well, it says, because remember, Nebuchadnezzar is telling us his story. At the end of that time, seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High God. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. The king says, God is eternal, not me. No human being is like God and we need to get back to this. We come and go, but God's rule cannot be touched. It is not changed. It cannot be removed. It cannot be overthrown. It cannot be taken by force. It cannot be removed by assassination or scandal or stupidity or sickness. God is the one who brings up. God is the one that gives us life. God is the one that gives human rule. God is the one that gives leaders power and position, but we are dependent on him. And then the king, the king of kings, the guy who had the nuclear codes of his age, says to all of those he is possessing and all that serve him, all the nations he has conquered, hear me, all nations. If God could meet me, one who was not believing in him or looking for him, if God could humble me, and if God then could restore me, he can do it with any one of you. You should listen to this God. 
Second, this polytheistic dictator says, and oh, this God, he's different than all the other kids. He's above all the gods. I have to praise him, honor him, and glorify him. Don't look at me anymore. Look to him. And do you notice this? This is so critical as we get into this. God only restored him when the king lifted his high eyes to heaven and acknowledged that he was only a human. And then this is what this king says. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back God's hand and say, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor, my splendor was returned to me and the glory of my kingdom. And my advisors and nobles, they sought me out. I was restored to my throne and became greater than even before. Now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything God does is right. In other words, there's no sin or shadow in him. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Now, here's the question we need to ask. Not just what did I learn today? Mm, hanging gardens in Babylon. I didn't know about that new information. Google, no. What, what are we not just intellectually understanding? No, it's deep. What is God, the God of Daniel, now found through Jesus by the Spirit? What is he not only trying to teach C4, we as a church? What is he actually trying to teach the church in Canada in this moment as we are trying to thrive in exile, as we're trying to walk out our faith now in an apathetic, growing hostile culture that is post-Christian and de-Christian and thinks actually what we believe is wrong and maybe dangerous? What wisdom are we gaining from the faith of our fathers who have been in this situation before? Well, the first thing we see is something powerful, not easy, but fundamentally necessarily embraced if we're going to do this well, and it's this. Association does not mean you agree, but you still have to be there to love. See, John, you've said that for a few weeks. No, no, let me go way farther than I've gone. What do we actually see in this moment? Daniel loved his enemy, but didn't just love his enemy from a distance. Daniel worked with his enemy, was in relationship with this king, our tendency as things get more difficult, as, as social media gets more and more intense about the Christian faith, as we have more and more questions, we think, you know what, here's what I need to do. I just need to hang out with people that think like me and look like me and all feel safe all the time. And God says, that is not why I've placed you in Canada in this moment. See, our tendency as Christians is this, is like, okay, if, if, I, then don't, if I leave the holy huddle and I go hang out with that person that's not a Christian, or that group, or I'm in that environment, then I'm going to be sinful for being in that environment or hanging out with them, or even worse, they're going to think that I think they're okay by what they're doing because I'm with them, so I shouldn't even hang out with them because if I hang out with them, they're going to think it's okay they're sinning and actually I think it's wrong for them to sin, so I'm just not going to go near them. In other words, I'm going to get tainted if I hang out with that group of people. No! This is not what Daniel is showing us, nor what Jesus is saying to us. Listen to what the religious critics said of Jesus all the time when he was on earth. Luke 7, 34, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you critics say, here is a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, and a sinner, and sinners. 
This is what people said about Jesus, religious people. This is what pastors said about Jesus. You know, he hangs out with tax collectors. Those people that are helping the Roman occupational government who continually crucify us and take our rights away. And oh, by the way, the tax collectors on the side steal from us too. Oh, and then there's the sex trade workers and the people who are, and they list all of these things. Jesus, you're a glutton and a drunkard and you're a sinner and a tax collector. That's an interesting different worship song we don't sing. Listen to another one, Matthew 2, 6, Mark 2, 16. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his followers, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, I've come to call sinners. When Jesus is accused of sitting in the wrong environment with the wrong people, he willfully says, you're right. I'm with these people all the time. Why aren't you? My wish, mission is to weak and sick and not healthy people. Now, Jesus is being brilliant here because people say, why are you eating with them? And he answers, as I'm a doctor. And he goes, well, anyone who's sick needs a doctor. But then he says, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And then you need to ask, well, who's he speaking about? Am I the sinner or am I the righteous person? Is it accusation or comfort? See, Jesus knows that the sinners and tax collectors and the religious leaders all need the same salvation. And see, idolatry always shows up in two ways. The first is called religion. The religious people are sitting and say, I don't need God. Don't buy me a cup of coffee, thank you very much. I can pay for my own latte on my own dime. I'm good enough, kind enough, I'm Canadian enough, I go to church enough, I read my Bible enough, I pray five times a day, I'm, and you fill in the blank. Moralism says it is up to me, I'm good, and I get God's favor, and I curry God's favor by my own hard work. I'm just fine. And the opposite side is hedonism. I don't actually need help. I'm going to live my life any way I want through sex, money, or power. One's about denial. One's about non-denial. But here's the crazy thing. Both of them are the same because we're at the center of the conversation and not God through Jesus. So Jesus was saying the tax collector and the sinner and the scribe are all in the same boat and they all need a doctor and he's the doctor and he's hanging out with everyone so they all can come back home. And here's what we've got to catch today. Daniel is demonstrating, and Jesus teaches us, that as Christians, we're not allowed to run away from people we don't like, nor are we allowed to buy into the idea that I shouldn't hang out with those people because if I do, dot, dot, dot. In other words, you should be in every single environment, at work, at barbecues, at home, where all sorts of people don't love Jesus and are doing all sorts of things you would not do because you cannot be salt and light unless you are among darkness. And some of you actually are afraid of what Christians are going to say to you when you go hang out with that person or go to that environment. Who cares what they say? Who cares what they say? Those conservative Christians need to realize something. In the end, Jesus wins, and we're called at this moment in this nation to be salt and light, and you cannot be salt and light and sit by yourself in a holy huddle. You should be at the bar with everyone else talking about Jesus and showing them that Jesus is alive. This is so critical. 
So our association with people that are sinners or tax collectors or Nebuchadnezzar doesn't make us unholy. It actually is our job to be at every neighborhood barbecue and hang out with friends and Muslims and Hindus and fill in all the different styles and religious types and non-religious types because here's the point. Association for us doesn't mean agreement. It just means you're there to show them light. The only rule to this is this. Daniel didn't sin when he was with the king. Daniel didn't give in to the idolatry. Daniel wasn't walking down to the temple of Marduk and offering sacrifices. He would still say no. So, for example, if you're an alcoholic, and I know some of you are, this is something that you will struggle with probably the rest of your life. I am not teaching you, go back to the bar environment to be a salt and light. You can't handle that. No problem. So that's a limit for you because you realize you will end up sinning against the God you're trying to witness about. But for the rest of you, get going. It is so unbelievably critical that your environment, now there are certain environments that are not redeemable. Strip joints, no, that's not what I'm teaching. No. So that's an unredeemable environment. My point is this though, as it gets harder, as it gets more uncomfortable, as more and more people think what we believe is crazy or medieval or backward, our tendency is to let fear win. No, perfect love casts out fear. And we have to be among neighbors and friends who are of different faiths and other backgrounds doing certain things. And never can we let any form of conservatism, I'm not talking about theological biblicism, conservatism, stop us from being Daniel to the king. God has placed you and you and you and us and the Christians in this nation. We're here for a reason. We are here to be Daniel to the king of our time. But you cannot do that from a distance, and you cannot do that over social media. No more keyboard warriors. We need people in relationship with people who do not know God. So, come close, and don't worry about being called a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Our Lord talks about that all the time. Second, and this is so unbelievably um, important to some people. As I was praying and preparing this week, this is the one that sort of grabbed me. And not just, oh, this is going to preach well. No, no, deeper than that. It was like, no, this is for some of you. Like the Holy Spirit's about to literally speak to some of you very directly. Daniel spoke to this king for a very long time. So don't give up on the journey on the person who's the Nebuchadnezzar in your life. It took years for the king to humble himself and say yes. I was reading a story from a pastor in Sri Lanka who was thinking on, reflecting on this passage and he told this story, story. this is not metaphor, this is a true story. He said sometimes uh, God calls us to minister to the same person over an extended period of time before they ever come to faith. One day a preacher was visiting a leprosy hospital and was talking to the people there and met one patient who had a vital glowing love for Jesus despite his leprosy. They struck up a conversation. The leper told the pastor, you know, I wasn't always like this. I wasn't always full of joy and love for God in my heart. When I first came to the hospital, I was angry and bitter. Actually, the most angry and bitter man in the whole hospital. But one man from a village near, nearby came and visited me every single day and brought me food. At first, when he came, I threw the food back in the visitor's face. He'd come out and offer to play cards with me. I'd just shout at him to leave me alone. He wanted to talk to me. I'd say nothing, nothing to him at all. He came day after day after day, and finally so frustrated this angry, bitter man with a deliberate, sorry, the angry, bitter man filled with leprosy said to this man, why do you keep coming to see me? 
All I show you is bitterness and hatred. And the man replied, oh, it's because I love Jesus. The preacher asked the leper, how, uh, the leper, how long did your friend from the village come to see you before you became a Christian? Oh, he answered, oh yeah, 13 years. He came every single day for 13 years. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the appropriate time or the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Some of you are so tired of the Nebuchadnezzar in your life. Unrepentant, arrogant, strong, uh, closed, intellectually, not into it, hurt by the church. You can fill in a thousand reasons and you just feel like, listen, keep showing them Jesus. Keep praying for them. Keep turning your cheek as they slap you. Keep loving them. If our Lord demonstrated what love looked like on the cross and showed, he, he, remember what did he say on the cross? They don't even know what they're doing. Keep loving the people in your life because in due time, you can reap a reward that is profound. Here's the third thing I'd like to say and I'd like to end with this. For anyone within the sound of my voice, whether you're seeing me here or you're watching online or you're listening to a podcast, any one of you that have not actually met God personally through Jesus, this doesn't mean you call yourself a Christian. Some of you are by title Christian, but you are not a follower of Jesus. I need to say this to you. No anger, no malice, but this is a holy moment. Repent while you still have time. There will come a time in the future where you will not be able to access the moment called mercy. The day of repentance will pass. What we see in the story of King Nebuchadnezzar is actually what Jesus later would teach, where Jesus clarified how you move from knowing a God is out there to actually maybe knowing his name and in sort of being sort of around him but not close to him, to actually meeting him and then to following him. See, the king's life, the encounters, the miracles, all of that, and then the grand humbling and the grand restoration is what we see demonstrated by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, again, if you're seeking or a skeptic or you used to come to church or you're part of another faith, this is for you. Jesus said these words in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3. Now, so many people have mispreached this passage terribly. Uh, Poor people only get into heaven. Uh, Blessed are those that have nothing. Blessed are those that are financially destitute. No, that is not what Jesus is teaching here. Blessed are those that are poor in what? Spirit. This is a spiritual condition. Blessed are those human beings that are lowly and humble and realize their true condition before God. Isaiah 66, 2, God said, these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. This one little verse in the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar outlines the spiritual bankruptcy we all have before God. The most religious person on earth in this moment, the most unreligious, the most devoted and uncommitted, all of us before our creator are poor, lowly, weak, deficient, reduced, and pitiable. Only when a person knows they're in trouble without and before God do they become poor in spirit. It's the ancient Christian cry, God be merciful to me, a sinner. As the king raised his eyes to heaven, that is only when everything changed. This is saying when a person of note or non-note, admits they have a deep need and longing for God, only then will they enter the kingdom of heaven. 
This is not about self-hatred. This is not saying you don't have personal value. This is not saying you are garbage. This is just an honest acknowledgement of the truth and your need before God. This is the fullest form of repentance. See, this is why salvation and becoming a follower of God through Jesus is so countercultural. See, like I said at the beginning, God offers us a free, beautiful gift of coffee, and many of us go, I can do it, thank you very much, back off. And others are like, well, what are you trying to do? You're trying to manipulate me? I don't know if I should trust you. You're trying to poison me? No. The gift actually is free and beautiful and safe and beautifully given. That is why Christianity is so offensive because it says you must humble yourself before you get the free gift and also says you can do nothing to earn it. Ephesians 2.8 is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is never from yourself. It's a gift of God, never by work. So no one gets to boast. No one gets to say, look what I've built. No one gets to say, look how amazing I am. Look what I wear. Look what I've achieved. No, no, no. God is the only one who has no beginning and end. We are just dust animated here today and God tomorrow. And yet God made us in his image and he loves us and wants us to come back home. Jesus says in Matthew 5.4, blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. It literally reads, happy are those who are unhappy. This is not talking about depression. This is not saying as Christians we're down all the time and weeping. This is saying when you realize how fallen you are, how far you are from a good knowing God, at that moment you will weep. And as you mourn over your condition, like the king mourned over his condition, then at that moment God shows up and love is given. See, let me just say this with authority today. Every human being who has ever lived or ever will live will in the end meet Jesus as Savior or Judge, but not neither. There's no in-between. If you want Him as Savior, you will mourn in this life and you will be given life and you will be given hope. Here's how Paul penned it in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. An old Scottish Christian once just wrote these words, O God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Why do we need to hear this? Because we as a church need to continually understand as we hear week in and week out of Daniel that God is sovereign and God is in control and when it seems God is not in control, he is in control. If he could bring down the Nebuchadnezzars of his day, he can bring down the Nebuchadnezzars of our day. We do not need to fear those who are loud because God wins in the end and God is watching. Number two, we are called to be with those who are fundamentally, drastically opposed to who we are and what we believe and actually even opposed to the God we worship. God has placed us in families and in neighborhoods and in jobs and in businesses and in, in positions of influence and education and government because he has placed us to be Daniel to those people. And some of you, this is the moment where you are realizing how far you are from God, how self-sufficient you've been, how you've trusted for security and happiness for everything that you have through what you own or what you do or what you've become. And God is coming to you out of holy love and humbling you and saying at this moment, you are nothing more than a human. Repent while you still have time so you can have eternal life and be raised up to better things. So would you mind standing wherever you might be today with me and could we respond this way? Number one, Lord, thank you that you're in control and as it's getting harder and more difficult to follow Jesus and to love scripture and talk about it, thank you that you're here among us and give us courage to keep loving and standing. Give us courage 
to actually be serious about our compassion and our convictions. Number two, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us as a church and forgive people in our church that have actually had this attitude that says that, that I don't need to be near that person or I shouldn't be near that group. If I'm by them, I'm somehow saying everything they're doing is okay or I just don't want to be around them because I don't like them, I hate them, they're my enemy. Forgive us, God, for our isolationism. Forgive us, Lord, where we have not followed in the way of Jesus, where Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Help us to be known as those people again. Lord, also forgive some of us for going to places where we weren't allowed to go and we said we're going to do it in God's name but ended up sinning and we knew we would. Forgive us for twisting your scripture. Lord, I I pray right now you'd give courage for some people to keep going. There are people in our lives we've been talking to God for, talking to them about God for years and it feels like nothing's budging. We just pray for the miracle that you'd intervene and just hear all sorts of prayers right now that are going up, Lord, over different people. And lastly, for some of us who've never met you and if you've never accepted God through Jesus by his spirit, this is what you do. You say, God, you just say this out louder in your heart. You just say, God, I'm a human and I've been rebellious and self-sufficient And maybe you want to list what you've been doing. I'm deeply religious or I've been deeply trusting in other things. I've been angry at you. I've hated you. I've ignored you. I've denied your existence. You just say, I acknowledge I'm made in your image. I'm not made in my image. And I repent. I turn right now from my sin at this moment. I just turn. I ask Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord and my leader. Clean me and make me right. I want eternal life. I want you to restore me under your conditions. And I want to walk in a brand new way. Come have mercy on me like you did Nebuchadnezzar. I'm poor in spirit. I mourn. And now I ask for eternal life. I ask this in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen. The way we're going to respond to this message today is through communion. And it's a great way to respond because communion is the great symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the symbol that Jesus conquered all evil. It's the symbol that we're forgiven. It's a symbol we're made clean. And it's also the reminder that one day in the new heavens and the new earth, we're never gonna do this again because there's gonna be this epic party and lots of food and we're gonna see Jesus face to face. Isn't that gonna be an amazing day when we get to see him? But today we're gonna take communion. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to this. If you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, then you can say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus' body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me and I've accepted that and I'm clean. The Bible says if you're a Christian and you're running from God, not to take it till you come home. The Bible says if you're not a Christian, don't take it yet until you accept the one it represents. The Bible also says if you're unreconciled with somebody and actually you haven't tried reconciling, wait until you try to reconcile first before you bring your offerings to God. And this is also a moment where you need to say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. So let me just pray over this. It's going to be passed today. And remember, this is a guaranteed place of encounter. Jesus is in this room right now. Where two or three Christians gather, Jesus is present. And as ushers pass communion at all our sites, it's not them passing it. Jesus is is passing this to you. He's serving you. So Father, Son, send the Holy Spirit. Let us be aware of Jesus' presence. Let us be aware of his love, his graciousness, and his kindness. Forgive us our sins and give us courage to keep proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.